Hi, I'm Stacey Schmicker-Rowan, Editor-in-Chief of Hospitality Design Magazine with HD's What I've Learned podcast. Every other week, we sit down with the stars of the design world to learn about their journey, where they are now, how they got here, and what they've learned along the way. Together, we'll get inspired, hear behind the stories from some of the world's most notable hospitality projects, hear the ups and downs of creating a business, and dive headfirst into all things design. From architects and designers to hoteliers and entrepreneurs, and all the multifaceted talents in between, join me to meet the passionate people who make up this industry. I actually sat with a group of contractors and designers with the uh, ownership group. I spoke no Mandarin, they spoke no English, and we conducted a three-hour meeting simply just using a lot of hand gestures and drawing. Um, and it sort of really impacted me just because there's a there's something about that the power of a pen and creativity and a desire to communicate that allows you to tear down barriers. I've always been aware of my difference. Um, and I think in design that has served me well because you get to begin to understand well whose voices are not being represented in the conversation. And and that began to really shape uh, a desire to be more inclusive in the design process. Hi, I'm here with Ian. Ian, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm well, thank you, Stacey, for having me. Yeah, excited. Okay, so we always start this podcast at the beginning. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Scarborough in Toronto, uh, okay. Canada. And were you a creative kid? Were you, you know, what were you like as a child? Yeah, I, I think I was creative, but more the quiet creative uh, type, but loved uh, early on playing with building blocks, uh, creating sort of different worlds with my figurines and transformers. And then later really uh, found an affinity for just sort of sketching and, and drawing. Yeah. Were your parents creative or did you have any early influences? Uh, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe creative in how they approached life. Yeah. Um, and survival. Um, I think my parents were genius at uh, making things work for four kids uh, in a new country and all those wonderful things. Um, but in terms of sort of the traditional arts, uh, no, that just sort of, I, I don't know where it came from. It just sort of happened. Yeah. And when you say a new country, had they uh, come to Toronto recently? From Yes, from Barbados. Uh, okay. So that's my, my background. I, I don't know why my, my father did this to me, uh, moving from lots of sun and sand and sea to, uh, although, yes, a beautiful country in Canada, but very cold at times. Yes, for sure. He definitely uh, traded uh, beach for winter. <laughs> yes. Do you go back to Barbados ever? Have you visited there to see family? I do. Yearly we go back. Uh, we have a lot of family, uh, a lot of love and a lot of connection uh, to what we call the rock, the island. Amazing, amazing. Um, do you have any early memories of design or hospitality or anything? You know, did you travel as a kid? Did you, you know, go on road trips? Did, was there any kind of early experience that might have hinted at, you know, forming an early love of what you do now? Yeah, I, I think mine were really formed from sort of making the connection between being able to create something on a page, um, which for me translated to, you know, I could sort of think of things and imagine things and sort of make them come alive 
uh, on, on a piece of paper. And then I think sort of slowly becoming aware of, you know, these spaces that we were occupying, um, places and people doing strange things. I, I think I, hopefully this doesn't sound creepy, but I, <laughs> no, not at all. I, I think I, I was a people watcher early on, just sort of curious about why people were doing the things they were doing, um, why they sat in that particular place or why were this group congregating? What was happening? What were they talking about? So I, I was sort of really curious about what these people were doing in these places. Yeah. Well, I think that's really important to watch how people use space. Right. So you're ahead of yeah, your yeah. <laughs> Or maybe. <laughs> so did you end up going to school for design then? I did. Uh, purely out of panic. Um, <laughs> I... Uh, <laughs> My parents, like most uh, immigrant parents, were were very keen on me going into uh, what is considered a professional um, career, which would have been for them a, a lawyer or, or a doctor. Um, and so when I mentioned to my mother that I wanted to go to, to art school, <laughs> she got this very serious look on her face and she just simply asked, how, how are you going to make money doing that? How, how will you support a family? Uh, which was her her major concern, um, but I, I was really home to um, you know be proficient in math and science. Uh, and my my father really wanted me to go into uh, some engineering field, and I just sort of sucked at math. Uh, I, I didn't understand it. I didn't put it together. Um, so I remember casting away all my art courses, English, and I focused my last year of high school on math and algebra. Uh, and, and physics, and it just made me miserable. And so I wanted to prove to my father that, okay, I, I gave it a shot, but this sort of isn't resonating with me. And, and I had a, a conversation with my art teacher at the time, Mr. Doyle, um, who sort of really changed the trajectory of, I think, my, my life. He introduced me to an art college and said, you know what, you should apply to this, but you only have two weeks to get a portfolio together. Uh, so I don't think my parents know this to this day, but I skipped school for about two weeks <laughs> and just put together a portfolio and ended up getting into uh, the art school. And so I did a foundation year and then was accepted into the envir environmental design program. Very cool. And did school help you secure your feelings for design? I mean, what did you, you know, did it help you kind of say, okay, this is what I should be doing? Yeah, absolutely. I think what school did for me was to, and I didn't know it then, but there was an, uh, an art to telling a story with design. And, and I wasn't really clear on the process. I just sort of knew that it happened. And so, uh, at OCAD, uh, the Ontario College of Art and Design, they were really big on sort of your conceptual thinking and understanding that what you put on a page and what you intended to become real needed to be steeped in, in some type of story or connected with something that was meaningful. And so I, I think understanding that really, really unlocked the uh, my curiosity about design. Yeah. And then after school, you went and worked for a few small firms. Just kidding. Yabu Pushwork, HVA, HOK. I mean, Yabu was one of the big Toronto firms. Was that kind of something you aspired to do or you know was that something you're hoping to do coming out of college yeah I um when I finished school I didn't feel like I I got enough quite honestly so I I spent about 11 months 
sort of putting together a, a, a yet again a, a portfolio of, of ideas that I thought would resonate with uh, specific companies. Uh, definitely uh, Yabu was on my list. And so I, I literally, I, I created a, a magazine for my uh, portfolio, which was all about the story of, <laughs> of me. Um, really, oh, yeah. I just my ego. <laughs> Do you still have this magazine? You know what? I don't know. I should try to, to, to sort of dig it up. That That's be. a good question. <laughs> but um, I dropped it off at the front desk at, at YP. And after I, I, I had dropped it off at a, a few firms and they gave me a call back and uh, called me in for an interview. Um, and I had a, an opportunity to sit down with, with Glenn, actually, uh, and walk through my uh, portfolio, talk about design. And a couple of weeks later, I got, a, I got an offer uh, to work for them. And wow, like like drinking water from a fire hose. Um, it was amazing creatively. I think Glenn and George, I, I, I had an opportunity to speak with them, I think a couple, maybe three years. This was pre, uh, pre-COVID. Um, this is, and many years later after I worked there and sort of, I'm still a little in awe of them and how many designers that they have actually trained for the world uh, of design. It, it's fascinating the impact that they've had uh, both on the profession, but also sort of personally in the development of, of individuals. Um, so YP was a, an amazing, an amazing experience for me. Yeah. What do you think you learned most from George and Glenn? So it, it, it's funny. I, I always remember this vivid story. Um, you know, we would have these design crits with, with, uh, with George and we would uh, sit around the table and he'd sit and we talked through concepts and ideas and you'd have to present what you were thinking about a particular uh, portion of a, a design in the space. And you knew immediately when you lost uh, George, he would sort of lean back on his uh, two legs of his chair and he just sort of look up at the ceiling. And it's not until you sort of began to understand him. Uh, it wasn't that he was ignoring you, but he was waiting to hear something that piqued his interest. And so you got really good at just flowing and thinking and riffing on design and morphing and changing uh, the direction that you were going. And immediately when he heard something that resonated, he dropped his, his chair and then he would be back focused on your, your uh, trace paper and then the conversation would continue. So I think from YP, I, I definitely learned that design is not something that's final. It's not your first thought. It's, it's a conversation that sort of evolves and makes itself visible uh, in the process. Very cool. And so you stayed there and then you went on to HBA, right? Yeah. Uh, so I made the move uh, from Toronto to Atlanta. I actually had an opportunity to go to the LA office. Uh, but quite honestly, I, I was a little afraid uh, to move to LA. LA seemed really big to me at the time. At, at this time, I think it was 20, 26, 20, 27. Um, and, uh, with all transparency, this was my first time, uh, being away from my, my family, uh, cause everything I knew, my world was Toronto and Barbados. And so the thought of moving all the way to LA just seemed <laughs> a little daunting. So I, I chose to, um, to move to, to Atlanta, uh, and work there under, uh, Howard Farr, uh, and Sandra Cortner. Um, they, they really, uh, Greg Bates, there, there's a great team of uh, associates and I think leading professionals in the industry that, that really, really shared and showed um, the craft of design, 
how you actually build design, um, not just do it, but the process that it takes in, in order to deliver uh, for your clients at a high level. Yeah. What kind of projects were you working on? So I worked a lot uh, in the Middle East uh, and in China. Uh, we did some work in, in London. Um, and I, I, I guess my North American project that, that was or really sort of formative in my understanding of getting from concept to, to building was the uh, St. Regis in Fort Lauderdale, which has recently been, well, not recently, this is maybe 10 years ago, uh, became the Ritz-Carlton. Oh, right, right, right. All right. And what was it about that project? Well, I actually got to be uh, the guy that showed up at meetings on a weekly basis. So for, I think, the better part of a year, uh, I was going from Atlanta to uh, Fort Lauderdale two, three days a week, uh, and coordinating with the, the project team, so the architects, the engineers, uh, all of the trades. And to be problem-solving um, in real time uh, was just fascinating to me. I, re I remember we had to uh, reposition uh, the stair to the front entry. And standing there sketching uh, an alternative and showing it with the contractor, the owner was there, and just sort of being able to make decisions on, on the fly, uh, I think was key. Um, and it's the first time that I realized that there's a difference between what you draw on the page and actually what shows up in real life. Yes. <laughs> kind of a rude awakening. <laughs> it was a rude awakening because you pour over your design, like you're you're looking at it through this sort of lens perfection of placement on you know the page or in CAD, um, that perfect piece of furniture that you've selected. And honestly, sometimes it just doesn't work out when it shows up. So you have to be flexible enough to to let it go and to make decisions on the fly. Yeah. No, for sure. Yeah. It's letting go of all ego, right? Yes. <laughs> Not being too precious. Not at all. I, I, it's funny. I, I just had a, a class yesterday. I'm, I'm teaching at a university here. Mm -hmm. And I told my students that, you know, perfection is not the goal. It, it's all about the process and you trying to make something a little bit better than it was before you arrived. And the look of relief on their face was a good reminder to me that I know sometimes in design we uphold these ideals, but it really is about the, the, the process um, and letting this notion of perfection go. Because oftentimes that the best things happen uh, with the most imperfect intentions. Yeah, I love that. And so you stayed with HBA for a few years, uh, well, almost a decade, right? Yeah, almost a decade. Was there one project that you look back there besides the St. Regis that might have been career-defining or something you learned the most from? Oh, there are, there are a couple um, for, for, for different reasons. I'll, I'll talk about uh, the Hyatt Shanglashan project, um, where I had an opportunity to travel to northern uh, China. We were working on a ski resort there, um, one of the, the first in the, the Hyatt uh, family. Um, and I remember showing up in Northern China being the only uh, black person um, in this sort of town and village and literally walking down the street and having people come out of uh, shops and, and stores and on the street sort of stopping and, <laughs> and pointing at me because I think they may have only saw someone like me on a television screen perhaps, but but not in, uh, in real life. And 
So for me, it sort of solidified, you know, this real need uh, to connect and to collaborate with others that are are different from you. Um, but also that, you know, we do have uh, an interesting language that we've developed with design. And on that trip, I actually sat with a group of contractors and designers with the uh, ownership group. I spoke no Mandarin, they spoke no English, and we conducted a three-hour meeting simply just using a lot of hand gestures and drawing. Um, and it sort of really impacted me just because there's a there's something about that the power of a pen and creativity and a desire to communicate that allows you to tear down barriers um, and really allows you to have a conversation. And so that was a, a, a really, um, I think, formidable experience. And then I'll, I'll talk a little bit about uh, working on the DIFC uh, in uh, Dubai. It it actually was the first project that I began to understand that our industry uh, is connected with with some pain. Um, I remember walking the site and seeing a long line of migrant workers uh, in blue jumpsuits uh, uh, lining up to board a bus. Um, and I was struck by that because there, it, there just seemed to be this endless line of, of people. And in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, they must be going back to their hotel. Um, you know, they, they've worked and now they're, they're going to, you know, take some rest and, and get ready for the next day. And it's not until on my way to look at another site the next day that I saw, uh, where they were housed that I began to understand that all of this glitz and glamour, um, comes at a cost and that cost isn't equal, um, for everyone. And so it really began to make me think more about the decisions that I was making as a designer um, and the purpose be behind uh, design and it potentially having a broader uh, scope of meaning for me be beyond just doing good work. Um, but there was a there was a human element that I had not been aware of until that that moment. Interesting. And how do you think that's affected you moving forward throughout your career? Well, I think for me, there, there are two things. Um, being a, a a black male, I, I've always been aware of my difference um, in in uh, various settings. I I I, I smile now, uh, but I remember showing up uh, to a meeting. This was in in Dubai, representing uh, the mighty uh, HBA Hirsch Bedner. Uh, walked in the room and, and was just waiting for the meeting to start. And our executives started pouring pouring in, and a few of them uh, asked me for to get tea. Um, so they were giving me their orders. And so they thought that I was uh, there to serve them, not that I was there to actually conduct the meeting. And so there there were assumptions that when someone like me shows up, uh, that are, are sort of shaped and formed. And so it was sort of shocking for them <laughs> to learn that, oh no, I'm, 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 I'm not, um, I'm not servicing the the room, but but I am here representing the the company that that you've hired to do a great project, and so I've always been aware of my difference, um, and I think in design that has served me well because you get to begin to understand well whose voices are not being represented in the conversation, and and that began to really shape uh, a desire to be more inclusive in the design process 
and, and to develop uh, sort of tips and, and tools to try to work not only the conversation into the development process, but to really share conversations of why it's extremely important uh, to, to do so. So taking all this into consideration, why did you decide to leave HBA and move on to HOK? So it, it was simply a life decision. It, it was time to, to move home. Um, I had two kids uh, in the U.S. and my wife was really keen on moving back home because she, she grew up without having cousins and uh, close family um, near to her. And she, she didn't want the kids to, to have that same experience. We, we had great friends in Atlanta, um, but there was something about being close to mom and, and aunties and, and uncles that, that she really wanted the kids to have that foundation. So we, we decided to, to move back home. Great. Um, and what was it about HOK that intrigued you or, you know, what was it about the opportunity that also helped, you know, make the move? So what was interesting is, so HOK is a, 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 a this sort of global giant um, in design. And having spent most of my career, in fact, all of my career designing retail or hospitality environments, it presented a, an interesting opportunity when I, I sat and met with leadership around infusing hospitality into other sectors of design. Um, and so that intrigued me to see how this really, I, I thought, um, exceptional sector uh, could really impact uh, the workplace or transportation or, or even um, stadium uh, entertainment design. And so to, to sort of make the, the leap and to take sort of all, all of this skill that I had learned in developing uh, hospitality environments just to see how that could impact other sectors was was an intriguing proposition. Uh, so so that was one of the decisions. And I also met a fantastic design leader in Randa Tukan, um, who I think modeled for me uh, the, the best design leadership that I've ever uh, experienced in, in the sense of understanding the connection between sort of your life uh, as an individual and the life that you were interjecting into your, your projects and, and how those things needed to be uh, in balance to, to do your best work. Amazing. And so what kind of projects were you able to work on at HOK? So we worked on uh, a few airports, um, both in, in your city uh, and in Toronto here, um, various uh, workplace uh, projects. Uh, I spent a good deal of time helping the team. Uh, we had great experts at, at HOK uh, in, in workplace design. So I got to collaborate uh, with a few offices, uh, both in the U.S., um, in, uh, in Hong Kong, also in, in Toronto on shaping uh, thinking behind uh, the workplace. Uh, also some some stadium work, which uh, was very unique and interesting to me, very fun and, and a culture unto itself, yeah. uh, which was great to sort of see how uh, design was built in, in that sector. And so, yeah, it was quite, quite a mix of some medical facilities. It was really cool. How did you take your experience? Because I feel like there's such a blur these days, right? Like hospitality influences, you know, stadiums and residential and I feel like you know the last 10 years or so there's really been a blurring of the lines um so how did you take your hospitality your retail experience and try to put that into this new context that you were that you're entering yeah I, I found excuse me one one of the things that you start with as a hospitality designer is uh, the story 
um, and how you want that story to connect with the, not just the, the end user, but with the context of the, the project brief. And so to bring that lens uh, in creating how you are um, creating connections with different touch points uh, within a project, I think was unique uh, to some sectors in terms of uh, planning and approach. And I think it was what I call the, this sort of idea of, of, of going slow to go fast. So building the right uh, sort of narrative and story up front um, that you could then connect your design decisions to uh, in order to deliver uh, an experience that, that is unique for the client. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And was there one project there that, you know, you learned the most from or was the most challenging? Ooh. We're all, I mean, they're all challenging. They're, they're all challenging. Um, but I think sometimes I, I don't want to name, I don't want to name names or, or projects, but I think the process of getting design delivered, uh, sometimes for various sectors don't necessarily allow for you to consider sort of the human impact of your decisions. Um, when you're thinking about schedules and delivery um, and sort of metrics that the, that the client has sort of predetermined, um, sometimes there's not a lot of patience to sort of rethink some things. Um, so I found that on a few projects there, you had to, you had to work extremely difficult uh, to help your audience listen to how you wanted to position things. Um, and so being met with resistance made you have to understand uh, other points of view besides just the end result of design. So creating a whole language around sort of metrics and, and data triangulation uh, and needs beyond just the aesthetic was critically important, even from a financing standpoint, to understand the finance of the project so that you could speak in different stakeholders language was critically important uh, to actually getting design decisions um, passed. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I think there's, you know, somebody was asking me a student, like, what would I suggest that they go do, you know, to learn, you know, be more successful, successful. And I said two, I said two things. I said, one, go um, learn how to be a good public speaker, take public yes. speaking classes. So you can be, you know, not the loudest, but the most effective in a room, voice in a room. And then I also said too, is learn the business side because I don't think, I mean, you're a prof you know, teacher now, like you're not really taught the finance side of, you know, what goes into what you're designing and ROI, especially in today's world and climate right. is so important for owners. Is that right. something now you're trying to, you know, teach others now that you're a teacher or, you know, help them understand that this is a, there is a business side of things. Absolutely. I think there are two key things that I think first, there, there definitely is the business, but there is also everything that that business is connected to. Yep. And so when we start thinking uh, a little beyond just human centered design to understand the impact of life centered design, to ensure that you are understanding that your decisions as a designer have implications uh, that go beyond just your moment or just beyond uh, the need of the client at the time to impact things that are crit critically important to ecosystems uh, and the environments, uh, people's livelihoods, social and economic um, sort of uh, positions and challenges. We, we have to actually make 
better decisions uh, as designers because, and, and through my, my studio now with the canthropy, we, we say all the time that life happens in all the spaces that we create. So what we do as designers is critically important because I, I, I love the narrative that people meet and fall in love in a space that's designed. Uh, you as, as, as a mother and, and a critical, uh, important part of your family provide uh, care uh, and, and insights and, and help to your family in a home that someone has, has designed. And, you know, when we finally cure cancer, it's going to actually be in a space that is developed and designed. So how do we as designers enable this, this critical uh, work uh, has to stay at the forefront of, of, of what we're doing, whether it's in a hospitality space or, or any other. Uh, there's, there's a very sort of human uh, responsibility that we have uh, as designers to, to deliver good, good work. 100%. And, and even more so today than I think in years past. So what made you decide, you know, almost five years ago to go off and launch your own firm, Decanthropy, which you just mentioned? What, what was, you know, it's not easy to kind of take a leap of faith, especially from, you know, bigger firms that you've been working at and having that not comfort, but having that backing of, you know, of a kind of a larger operation, you know, what was it and what, what um, propelled you to do, to make that change? Right. I I think if I'm totally honest with you, uh, I stopped believing in design um, in that context. Um, It began to become something that we did, um, something that we delivered. And was increasingly disconnected from the outcomes that I believed that we could drive as designers. Um, quite honestly, it was beginning to have a little bit of a, a negative impact on, on me and my, my life. Um, we sometimes shy away from talking about the difficulties, uh, that designers experience within the industry. Uh, there's great research. Um, I think it was from Ivy Exec that besides um, EMTs and social workers, designers experience the most burnout um, and, and challenges uh, of professions in the world, which is shocking when, when you sort of look at that. Yeah. Um, so the decision to, to sort of move on was to follow sort of a core belief that I had that, that there is a, a better way to deliver this work and, and to do it. And it, it was my sort of challenge uh, and sort of pursuit to, to, to try to do that um, in a way that was meaningful and, and understanding that it meant having to understand how we arrived at this point in design um, through getting more involved um, with education, uh, with our um, and with actually understanding the, the process and the systems that, that feed into why we deliver design the way that we do. So tell us about your firm and, you know, taking that into account, like, what did you want to create? What did you want to design? Is it more of consultancy or, you know, just tell us a little bit more about what you, what you have created over the last five years. Right. So the Canthropy is uh, an innovation studio. Uh, that we are really focused on embedding what we call structural equity uh, for people, processes, and, and projects. And so we sort of liken ourselves to social engineers um, that are really beginning to understand uh, systems that we're designing for so that we can create better uh, decisions um, 
that show up in the physical environment. So we do uh, an incredible amount of uh, thinking um, and changing how people view design. One of my key goals was to, to change how people think about design. And so we, we spend a, a good deal of time with, with executive uh, groups, showing them the, the, the power of um, inclusive design methodologies and, and, and equity approaches uh, as sort of a, a first primer to, you have to see the world differently in order to do something different <laughs> in the world that you're, uh, and spaces that you're occupying. And so from there, we then work through uh, a series of strategy points uh, that really, uh, again, uncovers what we call really solving the, the right problems. I, I have found that uh, through my experience, it's been great delivering solutions from a design standpoint, but we're, we're not always solving the right problems. And so through uh, our methodology and, and great collaboration uh, tools and conversations, we actually pinpoint uh, the correct problems to solve within the built environment. And then we look to actually uh, support that within the, the physical environmental design of spaces. So that, that's sort of what, what we do. Um, but I, I think at the, the heart of the studio is to really impact sort of what I would define as our accountabilities to, to design. Because every decision that we make uh, has an impact. And, and we have to be mindful that we're in an industry that, that contributes to about 40 to 45% of global waste, uh, period. Uh, so we're having a significant impact on the world that we are living in currently. And so beyond sustainability, there are key elements um, that we are affecting in, in people's daily lives. And so we need to be mindful of that um, while still having fun and doing work that that's meaningful. Right. And what kind of projects are you working on? Anything? So I, I'm currently uh, working on reimagining what living looks like for adults with intellectual disabilities uh, in a 250-unit uh, tower and creating community. Um, and so the fantastic thing that we've been able to do with, with this group, um, is through our lens, uh, just with hospitality and, and understanding systems is that we've pinpointed, pinpointed the correct problem to solve. Um, and it is addressing really stigma, uh, associated with these members of our community. And so it's, it's been our charge to, uh, define and create, uh, pre-designed strategies to help this, uh, team of, of uh, developers um, to really position design thinking around how we can create better spaces to, to support and build a community, which has been fascinating uh, for me. Um, and then we also have a, a project in, in Barbados that we are looking at uh, really to sort of bridge the gap between elder care and uh, child care um, in what we would describe as a hospitality approach to uh, creating community um, between these these two groups. I I, I always uh, remember this. This is more of a um, a family story. Uh, in our family, our elders pour over uh, the young ones. Um, there there isn't. I, I always re remember my my mom being astonished at at the the care and patience that overflowed uh, for my kids. That I didn't get when I was a kid, 
the, the candy, the, the juice, um, the you could have anything you want um, sort of mentality that, that happens when, when older people are in the presence of, uh, of kids. There's this, this great sort of human exchange. So could we use that as a, as a perspective to design a space that would help support uh, aging um, in, in a more uh, sort of human way? So taking everything you've learned from, you know, the past couple of decades, uh, what have you, what have you pinpointed that really works as the solution for creating this community, right? Because I feel like a lot of people talk about it, but what are you doing to really kind of infuse this and rethink how, how, uh, how this living complex should be? Right. So I, I think one thing that hospitality definitely uh, does really well is it talks about the, the journey and the customer journey. What what I've been able to uh, discern from that through my experiences and with the canthropy is that that journey is defined differently um, across uh, different groups. We we just call it the, the spectrum of humanity. And so once you understand that really the journeys are unique to lived experiences, and we, we call that uh, really representational uh, design, that you can have better conversations when you position people and what they need as individuals first. Uh, secondly, as what they need in terms of their groups that they uh, identify with. And then third, the collective, how those groups fit within uh, wider groups and communities. And so being mindful of those needs, uh, both as an individual level uh, within the groups and collectively, allows you then to think about how you position uh, opportunities within space for uh, connection, um, collaboration, um, uh, perhaps even conflict resolution. Um, and so it, it's that journey that I think in recognizing that it's different uh, for people um, across the spectrum of humanity that's critically important to to designing spaces that are effective. And since launching the canthropy, has the joy come back? <laughs> has the love of what you used to do, you know, been reignited? It, it absolutely has. Um, and I, I feel uh, at times um, as if this, I, I just don't want this to, to end. <laughs> so you, you're faced with, and there's the realities of, of running a business and wanting to do the right thing and, so it's this balancing act of, of really wanting to do the work that impacts uh, people in, in the way that you feel is, is meaningful um, without compromising uh, to the degree just, just for the sake of profit. And, and I, I don't say that to be disparaging, but it is a real struggle. Um, and I understand uh, for business owners and, and companies, we, we, we start businesses to for profit, that's why businesses exist. Uh, so we, we can't remove profit out of business. But I think if, if we can align purpose with the profit um, in ways that are more equitable, um, that I think that we can do better work. And we, we like to say that building humanity is, is better building. Um, and so we, we try to focus on that and uh, in, in all the spaces, whether it's, it's hospitality, uh, whether it's a retail space, or, or whether uh, it's trying to find solutions, oddly enough, that are at the sort of periphery of design. For example, food waste. Um, how do we 
how do how do we address that? I'll, I'll tell you a quick um, sort of problem that we're trying to solve. Uh, specifically in Barbados, um, there is a forty percent uptake in food waste showing up in um, landfills at the peak of tourist season. But there's an enormous amount of food insecurity on the island, and so why is that? Um, there's that's a hospitality. Uh, issue that we need to solve because when a hotel shows up in a place, it it's not always good for the people that are there. And so even rethinking our development models is something that we're very keen on, on doing so that we're developing and creating experiences, not just for those to come and experience our hotels, but we're also enriching the lives of the places that our hotels sit in. Uh, I think that's critically, that's a critical, important part of the conversation as well. Yeah. I mean, there's so many big challenges, you know, in this industry, like you said, sustainability, food waste, equity. How do you, as, you know, one firm kind of slowly tackle those? Like for those that are trying to do similar things that you are, how, what advice would you say in trying to start making change, right? Because it can be very overwhelming. Um, how do you kind of focus and say, you know, kind of one step in front of the other to make a difference? Right. So I've, I think, stolen this this term. I, I heard it once and didn't know what it meant, but don't boil the ocean. Um, you have to really sort of pinpoint through good, slow analysis of where you think you can influence or impact uh, an issue. And oftentimes I tell designers, perhaps start with the products that you're specifying. Um, when you look at the ecosystem of the finance for design, we have an enormous amount of influence over the projects, over, sorry, the product that we're picking, um, how it's made, um, the resources that are, are, are used to make it, uh, how far it travels to get there. So we can make better decisions uh, by simply understanding the nuances of, of our specification um, process and simply making different choices. Uh, I also say to at least try to make one significant change uh, in whatever uh, you are doing or are responsible for on a daily basis. Just try one change, one small tweak in the process that can actually speak to inclusion, can speak to equity and see what happens. I, I also share that I lose a lot during the day. <laughs> I, I, I hear no far more than I hear yes, but it's my desire to get to the yes that, that keeps me just, it, it's that it, going back to uh, the story with, with Glenn, I, I think that was formed there. You just keep having the conversation until you change someone's mind. Yeah. So yeah, one win, one small win at a time. Baby steps, baby steps. A um, couple of quick questions before we wrap. Um, what part of the process do you love the most? Honestly, I, I believe looking at what, what we call the human factors. Um, so this is connected to stakeholder analysis, but understanding where uh, failure happens in systems of design from a human perspective. Uh, and we miss that as a critical step in a lot of our design uh, practices because we are a people business. Nothing gets done in design without people. Um, and if your people aren't well, they tend to design from that perspective and your designs don't really 
meet the and serve the purposes that they they should. And and I, I know that from personal experience. I, I know what it is to design when you're not well. And I think it's critically important for our uh, practices and our professionals to ensure that they are well and that they're whole so that what they are producing is reflected that position so that it can support wellness and, and wholeness in, in the environments that they're, they're, they're designing. Yeah, love it. And then has there been one memorable trip or travel experience or hospitality experience that kind of has changed your mindset or has you know stayed with you? I remember this was another trip uh, to, to China. Um, I was working on a project designing uh, a Chinese restaurant. And I just sort of thought to myself, yeah, I'm a black man from Canada, from uh, West Indian sort of heritage in China, trying to design a Chinese restaurant for Chinese people. Something's wrong here. <laughs> so... For me, it is about understanding that the process of design is about sharing knowledge and designing together, um, and that there isn't one perspective of, of design. It's critically important to understand, and this may be a little controversial, design is a construct. Um, design has happened across every culture on this planet, through every people, um, throughout all time, from Paleotheic uh, to, to present day, design happens. Um, when we've defined it as interior design, we've created um, sort of a metric or a framework of what good design looks like in interior design. And I think part of, of our new uh, challenge as designers is to call back into design the other influences from other peoples and, and cultures. Uh, to inform it in a way that can actually speak to a broader spectrum uh, of, of of just humanity. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Um, I mean, I couldn't even imagine. I mean, how did you even approach that? Did you just get other people's opinions? You know, did you do research? I mean, what, do you remember kind of how you how you approached it? Yeah, I, I remember admitting that I, I don't know how to do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which. I think it's difficult for designers to do because we're trained to have solutions. Um, and so to confront the fact that yeah, you don't have this was, was difficult because at the time you're working for very powerful firms with in the room with people that, you know, have made it to the top of the, the profession and you are the one that's supposed to know. And so to sort of try to take a step back and say, can we actually incorporate some more voices and perspectives into this to, to inform this work is, is a bit humbling. Mm -hmm. But I think it's necessary when you're designing for people um, that are, are just have a different experience from you. Right. It's only now that I know that from a, design, uh, from a cultural and design standpoint, our brains are actually formed very differently from culture to culture. We, we literally see the world differently. Whether I am uh, an, an African man or, or an Asian woman, I, my brain literally has been shaped and formed differently. And so we have to understand how other people see the world uh, and through their lenses. And we can only do that through collaborating with people that are, are, are different and have different experiences, lived experiences. And so it's, it's okay as a designer not to have all the answers. 
but it is, it's hard to kind of swallow that and then realize that, you know, more voices are, you know, usually turn out to have a better outcome. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Tell us one thing about yourself that most people might not know. I, I secretly really wish that I could be a bass player uh, in a funk band. Um, I, I'm trying to learn the bass now. I'm horrible. <laughs> but the bass player to me is the is what I want life to look like. Because the bass player, in, he's the one in the band, she's the one in the band that is always having the most fun. I, so I, I definitely want to be the, 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 the bass player in, in the band of my life. <laughs> so we always end the podcast with the question that is the title of the podcast. So what has been your greatest lesson or lessons learned along the way? I think the more of yourself that you put into your work, uh, the better the outcomes are. And I, I don't mean in the sense of working hard or working tirelessly, but I think just your authentic self um, that expresses care within the decisions that you're making as, as a designer will change the trajectory of your outcomes um, and processes immensely. Thank you, Ian, for such a thoughtful and inspirational conversation. I loved spending this last hour with you. Um, Stacey, you're, you're, you're the best. Thank you. So are you. Um, I hope I get to see you in real life soon. And uh, yes. have a great rest of January. I don't know how it's January, but have a I, I know. Yeah. Well, hopefully I'll see you soon. Um, and if not, keep in touch on all you're working on, please. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Hospitality Designs, What I've Learned. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find full episodes and transcripts at hospitalitydesign.com.